Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and today I'm speaking to Andrew Fenter. Appointed as Africa Foundation CEO in November 2020, Andrew has more than 25 years' experience in conservation and community development, having worked with the community surrounding the Kruger National Park, as well as what was then the Greater St. Lucia Wetland Park. Andrew also played an instrumental role in the founding and leadership of the Wildlands Conservation Trust. His passion to understand and help offset factors such as global warming, population growth and resource consumption led him to work with the Institute for Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cambridge. Andrew will be sharing his thoughts on how he has seen the relationship between communities and conservation develop over the years and the forces that helped to shape his career, leading him to his current position at the head of Africa Foundation. He will also share some of his goals and predictions for the future of Africa Foundation. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining us today. It's really great to be talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here. Andrew, you've recently come on as CEO of Africa Foundation, which of course is the, the community development partner that Beyond works with in the rural communities surrounding our reserves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Africa Foundation? Uh, sure. So um, I think the starting point for me is that I'm South African. Um, born and bred, I grew up in Johannesburg. My formative years in many ways were during the, the years that I spent at Wits University in the mid-80s. I arrived there as a um, very confident young man, but I've come from a particular worldview in South Africa, a very uh, cloistered view and a, a world that didn't reflect the real South Africa. And I hit fits in the mid-80s and I walked into this melting pot just, uh, uh, of the real diverse South Africa and all the issues that went with that. And as an 18-year-old, that really triggered a deep desire to address the challenges that we had created for ourselves, particularly some of the social ones. I'd also had the privilege of spending many years as a scout, and that it meant that I'd spent my teenager years in many of the wilderness areas in South Africa, lots of hiking, lots of camping. And so I had this embedded passion for the environment. And really what happened for me is I got caught up in the sort of activism of the late 80s and 90s, and I'm landed up finding myself working at this interface between social justice and environmental justice. I landed up being out the country for a while and needed to leave the country so that I didn't get caught up in the South African army. Whilst I was out of the country, though, I realized that I wanted to come home, that my place was in South Africa, and my calling was to make a difference back here. And so I came back and then... Continued studying and had the privilege of actually picking up a PhD opportunity to work around the Kruger National Park, starting then in 1993. And it was a fascinating time. It was really, really tough. I went into the Kruger National Park with the intention of shaping a model for how the Kruger National Park could and should be working with its local communities thinking, of course, that that was moving. The reality is it wasn't. And I arrived at Kruger, and it was in many ways the last outpost from a conservative South Africa perspective. You know, it was my um, sharp learning curve. 
I landed up spending two years working in the communities next to Kruger, developing an understanding of their structures, who the leaders were, and then developing an understanding of what the issues were that affected their relationship and, in fact, their hatred for Kruger. And that was a real um, eye-opener for me, that that was the reality. Poor rural communities living next to Kruger National Park and, in fact, most conservation areas hated those parks. They really did not value them. They represented everything that was bad for them. They'd stolen their land, they killed their cattle, they beat up and arrested the men. And so this challenge was there that this has to change. We cannot cannot continue like that because if we did, these beautiful wild places that we cherish so much will be lost. From Kruger, I went down to St. Lucia, what was then called the Greater St. Lucia Wetland Park, and with uh, a very similar intent to work with the then um, Isabella Case Wildlife to start shaping a model for how the emerging World Heritage Area, now called Isimandaliso, could and should work with its neighbours. It was a lot more progressive and there was a lot more experimentation going on at that stage. Isimbelo itself recognised that they needed to figure out how to move from a fortress-based conservation to a community-based conservation model. But there was a lot of other work going on, and in, included in that was the work of some pioneers that I landed up spending some time with and who really inspired me, one of whom is still part of the and Beyond family, Les Carlisle, and then a little bit later, a number of others, Tony, Tony Adams, uh, Jason King, Kevin Pretorius. And these were individuals that were involved in the early, early days of shaping Pinder. You know, today we talk about Pinder as this amazing success story. Well, I can tell you that way back when, I'm talking about, I met them in 1995, 1996. The honest truth is that we all thought they were mad. They they had arrived in a very wild area and they had taken on properties that had been so badly degraded by generations of farmers who had really just abused the land. They have a vision. They, they believe that they can turn this around. They can mm-hmm. restore these amazing areas. But not only can they restore these areas, but they can do it in a way that is going to underwrite the development of the communities that live around those areas. And that was inspirational. There's no doubt about it. I spent you know time at that point working with National Park, working with Esenvelo, and very much at the other end where I was working with Agencies that were quite locked in their view, had a quite a conservative approach to that. And yeah, was this group of mavericks, these amazingly inspirational individuals that were going, we can do this differently. You can do this in a way that's solid business principles to it. But more importantly, you can do it with empathy. You can do it with the interests of both mm-hmm. communities and the environment at heart. And so that, yeah, that was a key turning point for me. I think it reinforced my personal commitment to continuing to work at that interface. I was lucky that a few years later I got the opportunity to join what was then a very small organization called the Wildlands Conservation Trust and that the trustees believed in my vision and my vision was that there was a need for a South African non-government organization that could focus at this community conservation interface. And so I ended up spending an amazing journey, 19 years with Wildlands, and Mm -hmm. 
helping to build a team that still today just had the most incredible impact working across the region and, and well actually into East Africa as well, making a real difference at this interface between pro-poor community development and sustainable environment use and the conservation of ecosystems. Two years ago, I started approaching um, you know, that uh, mm. golden age of 50 and a lot of self-reflection at that point. Uh, remembered looking back to when I was in my early 30s, late 20s and looking at uh, the leadership of the environmental sector and thinking, oh my goodness, they're all old and gray and then seeing myself in the mirror and going, oh my goodness, I'm gray. Um, and I'm, I'm the same age as they were when I looked at them. And that really reinforced for me at that point that at least from a wildlands perspective, it was time for me to, to step, step out and create space for the incredible leadership team that were coming through to chart and lead mm-hmm. an, a new direction, whatever that would be. So I took a break. I reached out to a few organizations that um, I had maintained links with, that I was passionate and inspired by, one being the University of Cambridge's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and then the other one being the Africa Foundation. It was amazing to see you know, just the response. So both parties were very enthusiastic. Immediately it was like, we have to find ways of working together. I landed up spending most of 2019 working with Cambridge and helping to reshape the South African office that they have and, and with an emphasis again on trying to understand how, how we move forward at this interface of sustainability and how do we nurture a new leadership generation's understanding of the importance of sustainability within the context of climate change, resource constraints, overpopulation. But maintain links with the Africa Foundation because it, without a doubt, was the opportunity that was just screaming at me that the, if I could have the privilege of spending some time working with the foundation, it would just be a, a wonderful next contribution that I could potentially make, but a, you know, just a, a personal piece for me, an aspiration. And uh, the opportunity came along with the foundation looking for a CEO, and I sit here today just you know, loving every minute of it. Uh, last three months have passed in a fantastic blur as I've got to get my head around the real depth of what the foundation does across, across its African footprint and really you know, developing an understanding of the core methodology, the, the focus around doing things well and doing things that are in a community-led way rather than an imposed way. And then, very importantly, understanding the incredible potential that is presented by this magical partnership between the Africa Foundation and and beyond. Mm. That's a pretty amazing story and a pretty amazing route that's led you towards Africa Foundation. I find it really interesting that you talk about the attitude that the communities had towards the game reserves, probably about 30, 40 years ago now. And it's something that I think has taken a great deal of effort and a great deal of trust from both sides to change gradually over time. And again, the model that was introduced at at Pinda at that time, you said, well, everybody thought that was absolutely crazy. So this concept of communities and conservation being mutually interdependent, how is that something that's changed over the years? You know, these days when you speak about conservation, I think pretty much everybody buys into the fact that it has to be linked into community somehow. 
how do people actually do that effectively? And how do you see it playing out and growing even stronger in the future? I think you need to go back and uh, understand the genesis of this. So a hundred odd years ago, there was very little formal conservation on the planet. The first protected areas have been established. And the reason for that was that there wasn't anywhere near the same level of impact. Just as a simple example, there were 2 billion people on the planet in the 1920s, around about 1925. We're nudging 8 billion today. So in 100 years, we've gone from 2 billion to 8 billion. And then if you add to that all of the other pressures, the, the, the ecosystem damage we've done, the resources we've extracted. So 100 years ago, this concept of conservation was like a luxury because the systems were there and they were relatively intact and the populations were vibrant and biodiversity was solid. What then started happening is we started seeing population growth. We had two world wars. We had a real impact of the Industrial Revolution. And all of a sudden, we started to impact on systems. We started to poison rivers. We started to destroy fisheries. We started to cut down forests. And we started to use charismatic species. So we started to see an impact on things like rhino and elephant, which are really just flag bearers for the damage we're doing to the rest of the ecosystem. It's just because we noticed those. And so accompanying that was then a response from members of society that cared about the environment and that were watching this to say, we need to do something about this. And we saw then yes. the, the rapid rise of the predicted area model. Um, with you know, a dramatic increase in the number of parks being established all over the world. One of the challenges with that was, more often than not, the establishment of protected areas is driven by a government agenda, and it didn't take into account the individuals that were based in those environments, whose land it was. And so the establishment of protected areas became synonymous with the loss of land. And communities, poor communities across the globe, landed up um, losing the land because somebody looked at the land and said, well, we can protect this because it's not been developed yet and no one's using it, not thinking about the fact that, of course, there's people using it. They're just using it in a different way. And so they lost their land and they were displaced um, and landed up more often than not living on the edge of these areas. Now, the reality there is that all you've done is you have created a conflict situation. And it took us a long time to start figuring that out. In this African context, the late 80s was quite interesting because we started to see the first efforts being made by conservationists to change the model. Catalyzed initially in Zimbabwe through a program called the Campfire Program. And what the Campfire Program did is it actually focused around the areas outside of protected areas, but where there was still free-roaming wildlife, and tried to create a form of a conservancy whereby the community would have the right to manage the area, the right to utilize the wildlife on there at least as long as it was sustainable and sustainable from an off-tech perspective. That then triggered uh, similar programs in Botswana, the life and conservancy model in Namibia, AdMate program in Zambia, and all of these happened in the early 90s. I was studying at that point and uh, we started hearing about these models and we were totally intrigued by them and there was nothing like that happening in South Africa. At all. South Africa was still very much locked in what we refer to as a fortress conservation model, which was fences, guns, protect and defend. Clearly, we saw a transition, political transition in the 90s. And along with that was a shift in the way that 
our, our government and leadership looked at social issues, all of a sudden, poor individuals were no longer just seen as an irritation um, at best. They were actually seen as important citizens who were part of, who were South African, who mm-hmm. needed to be part of decision-making. And so that, that then started to require a need to consult, engage with. And so we saw a really aggressive shift in the 90s and two, early 2000s where um, all the conservation agencies were put under pressure to change the way they were doing conservation, to move away from fortress to a community-based model. And um, we saw the rise of models like the and beyond model, which was, and in many ways is still a signature model within the private sector. And, th- and there was a dramatic shift. This was accompanied by land restitution in South Africa, which saw many communities retaining the rights to their land, but on condition they remained as conservation areas. Uh, Everything was going the right direction. It was all about we need a a much more embracing community approach to resource custodianship. And, and you know, it has its challenges. There were lots of of areas that that didn't work, but there were some fantastic um, examples of where it really worked and where it led to large um, land expansions as well. If you look at the big Addo Corridor, the Simonglisa Corridor, and many others. Unfortunately, that momentum from a South African perspective uh, was rocked in 2008 when we started seeing the onslaught of the rhino poaching in South Africa. And that really caught us by surprise. You know, we were at that point, we were demilitarizing conservation, essentially. We were focused on having relationship managers managing the interface between the management of land and communities that owned it or lived next to it or visitors. It's a fantastic space to be in. And all of a sudden, uh, syndicate crime got involved, figured that there was a weak point here, that there were these assets wandering around in the former rhino, and took it on. And that resulted, has resulted in quite a heavy kickback around that over the last while, led primarily by the fight to protect rhino. But it has allowed some of those, that naturally conservative group of individuals back into leadership roles where they are exerting, you know, this sort of a shift towards a fortress, a, a based approach. Yes. However, what had happened was yes. private sector tourism had exploded over the same period. And again, you know, if you think, uh, reflect on the fact that there were these mavericks wandering around in northern KZN, um, inspired by Londa Losey, and maybe they could establish another lodge in the middle of nowhere. Today, it's, you know, uh, there's lodges, there's lots of lodges around. And actually, when, if somebody goes into a fairly remote area, they're not seen as a maverick. You have a logistics conversation about how do you get tourism to work. Um, and so we see this massive explosion in ecotourism, which relies on and requires natural landscapes and wildlife. That are, so landscapes that are scenically beautiful and then charismatic wildlife. And so the, the last 10 years have almost been a push-pull between those two, where there's been a bit of a push from a government perspective to, to adopt a more conservative approach. But society has been going, wait, we want access. We love this. We want to visit. And so society has started to realize that there's these beautiful areas out there. There's amazing wildlife. TV, social media have come along and have really unpacked. Of course, COVID has hammered a lot of that. But what has happened in a COVID space is it has reinforced this new norm that we have, that there is a thing called ecotourism. And ecotourism relies on healthy, intact, vibrant, charismatic landscapes and wildlife. 
and that communities rely on both of those now for their livelihoods. And so I think we'll be sitting at the moment as we're on the cusp of that next journey. The next journey is one where the notion of the poor community is shifting to the notion of a group of individuals that have a vested interest in the survival and conservation and the sustainable commercial development of opportunities around that. And so it's now becoming more mainstream as an economic activity rather than a government-led prerogative or the, you know, the purvey of a group of greenies that are sitting out there that are fighting for something that's odd. I definitely think we're going to see that shift over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, the, we are going into a post-COVID world, which is going to be interesting from a travel perspective, but COVID is symptomatic of a greater set of, of sustainability challenges. And fundamentally at the heart of sustainability are really three core things. First of all, we have to change the way we drive our economy. We cannot have a fossil fuel-driven economy. It is destroying the planet by virtue of global warming. Secondly, we cannot continue to destroy the natural ecosystems that sustain us and erect our presence on this planet if we want to, if we want to survive. So, you know, every river we now uh, poison, every forest we chop down, every fishery we exhaust, actually is just hastening our own extinction from the planet. And that, and that understanding is there. So we now are seeing a parallel drive at global policy to say, remove our reliance from fossil fuels and restore nature because we need nature to survive. And then the third piece that goes with that is a very strong recognition that the inequality that has happened over the last hundred years as we have gone from 2 billion to 8 billion is fatal. The reality that 4 billion, half our population, are living in environments where they are unhappy, uncomfortable, hungry, cold, is a massive destabilizing force. So we're sitting at this cusp where global policy economic policy and society are saying we need to change the way we're doing it. And for me, what's fascinating then is to say, right, right at the heart of that, demonstrating the potential of a different model sits this relationship between Africa Foundation and, and beyond, which is premised on the conservation and restoration of landscapes and seascapes, great ecosystems that underwrite our health. It's premised on the principle that the people that live in those landscapes, mm. they need to be living in those landscapes in a way that is sustainable in the context of that landscape. They, they need to be prosperous in that context. That doesn't mean they need to be rich, but they need to be warm at night. They need to have food in their bellies. They need to, be, they need to enjoy their lives. And mm -hmm. it's premised on the principle that the one economy that can really drive that in some of the most remote places on the planet, both the conservation and the sustainable development of those communities, is ecotourism. And, and there's examples of that. And so right at the moment, as the world is seeing the shift and knowing that they, it's, no, it's no longer they should, the world is saying we have to. Yeah, we've got a model that is, is walking the talk. 
it's really a very, very delicate balance to strike, though, isn't it? I mean, you speak about government policy and environmental policy, and yes, it is all heading in the right direction and people want the right things. But as you just pointed out, at, at the heart of that are the people who are actually living in those areas. And I can imagine that it must be really hard to care about sustainability and, and hard to to care about conservation when, as you said, your needs are not being met. Is this entire model sort of premised on the fact that there has to be some kind of gain for those communities and their needs, their economic needs and their development needs have to be addressed by the people who are creating policy for tourism? Yes, and I think it goes beyond that. I mean, it's premised on the recognition that it's not not only that they need to benefit. Um, I think the previous thinking was they needed to benefit. The contemporary view now is that it's not about benefit. They need to um, be embedded in it. It's It needs to be their solutions. It needs to be their initiatives. And they need to own that shift. If I can give you a, a really interesting and relevant example of how this has shifted. So, and, and I'm going to use Pinda as an example of this. So, you know, Pinda started early 90s. At that point in time, it was land that had been degraded. And there was a group of people came along and said, well, we can restore this. In the process, they said, well, there's communities living next to it. You need to benefit from this. So there's a conservation model, there's an ecotourism model, and then there was a community development model. And that community development model focused initially on, on improving healthcare, then from there moved to improving education, from there moved to improving um, school exit opportunities in the forms of bursaries and enterprise development. And over 25 years made a dramatic difference to the quality of life and livelihood in those communities. Now, at the same time, there was a land restitution process and some of those key communities landed up having elements of the Greater Pinda restituted to them. And so they became no longer the neighbours that were benefiting from the presence. They've now become essentially shareholders in the model. At the moment, landlords, and in time, without a doubt, they'll become shareholders. And that's a fascinating shift because, I mean, it, it's challenging and it's challenging from an and beyond perspective because, you know, there's evolving partnership every five years it has a different dimension because the poor community you're dealing with 25 years ago is today a, a thinking, intellectually strong, um, well-resourced community that has its own ideas. But actually what's fascinating is those ideas still look at this land and say, we need to protect this and we need to make sure that it's well conserved. But there's been a shift in the balance of that relationship. And I think that that is indicative of the shift that we need to get right globally around the conservation of resources. It's not about protected areas benefiting local communities. It's about conservation landscapes benefiting from the sustainable development and custodianship of the communities that live in those. And, and that's a key shift. It's a philosophical shift. It's, it's not about uh, we, we need to educate and it's about we need to shape um, this, this concept of custodianship and then stewardship. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you see that happening in places other than Pinda? You spoke earlier, you worked in the areas around the Kruger Park. Is this a shift that's happening throughout not just South Africa, but Africa as a whole? Yeah, I think that there are um, 
examples that are promising, but it's definitely not happening on scale. Generally, the overt presence of government or private sector sitting next to generally very poor um, social context means that, that the power balance is wrong. But I think that there are other places in the world where you start to see those shifts. I think there's some interesting stuff happening in Asia, in the South American environment. And fundamentally, what it is linked to is a shift in the economic circumstances of the community that are the would-be stewards of that landscape. So as they develop their world knowledge and their, their resource base, their ability to become custodians in a modern world shifts. Remembering that many of them were custodians in a previous world. These were landscapes they lived in and they used sustainably. And then what happened is an external world arrived. We looked at the trees they had and looked at the animals that they had and looked at the rivers they had and said, well, we'll take these. And they weren't in a position to stop that. So they're needing to now shift their um, ability to engage on a level platform with this world that is extracting from them. I think we're going to see a lot more damage before we see a positive shift. I think the conservative in me says 10 years' time, we'll, we'll start seeing a much broader um, change in these relationships. What's critical there is that that will be linked to a shift in power to a younger generation coming through. Just to talk to what I mean about that. So when I was at university in the 90s, we didn't talk about climate change. And I don't even think I heard that term. And I, you know, embedded in the natural sciences. Yet, if you ask my daughter, who's 14 years old, about climate change, she looks at me as if I'm dumb that I should ask that question. And she will give me a textbook definition and understanding of it. She had a good understanding that it was a problem five, six, seven years ago. So we've got a generation coming through that are going, um, we need to do things differently. So that's the climate change interface. And, and I think that the leadership generation coming through now, 25-year-olds, are very much concerned about climate change. The next generation behind them, the 10 years behind them, are going to be worried about biodiversity loss. And they are going to be focused on global change that drives a restoration of biodiversity rather than the loss of. And once you start getting those global movements, then you start creating a platform for communities that are living in those environments to be able to shape partnerships because the world is going to be coming into that space to say, let's work together to try and make this, you know, conserve and restore these areas. So I think it's going to take some more time. We have to decouple ourselves from the way we live on this planet at the moment and embrace a new way. And then that way will drive that change. So I think we've got a good 10, 15 years before we'll see significant shifts here. When you speak about the leadership of the future and the young people coming up and the concerns that you feel will drive them, do you think that this is reflected in the rural communities that, that you deal with? Is the young generation coming up in those, those communities sort of aware of and concerned with the same issues? I don't think that they are as deeply aware as um, individuals living in a upper middle class type education environment. Having said that, what we are seeing, you know, is the power of media, in particular social media, and the reach of social media. So, again, as an ex uh, you know example, when I was working around Kruger in the mid um, '90s, um, I didn't have a cell phone. 
They didn't have an email address. There was no Wi-Fi access. Google didn't exist. So knowledge was uh, limited substantively to what was written in books. We would just start to use computers. Of course, today, knowledge is so much more accessible. And um, the introduction of uh, cell phones, smartphones, means that um, there's a news journey that goes on around the world into areas that have previously never penetrated. This last week has been very interesting for me. So we've had heavy rain across South Africa, in most parts of South Africa. I have a particular interest in that northern KZN area. I just you know, know it well. Um, and I understand to some extent the wet-dry cycles that have happened there. Working in that area, one of the moments in time that everybody talks about is Des Moines in 1987 and the, the floods. And so, you know, we're conscious of that. But what I've noticed this last week, and particularly on uh, Facebook feed, which just happens to be my social media addiction, is the a number of posts mm-hmm. coming out of remote rural communities where individuals were talking about rivers rising, floods, heavy rain. They started to talk about uh, cycles. They started to talk about don't live too close to river banks. They started to talk about the importance of wetlands. These were not scientists. These are not environmental educators. These are just you know, average people who happen to either follow me or I follow them via a Facebook piece. 90% of them have no idea who they are. It just happens to be my Facebook profile. And they picked up on, you know, picking up on the post that I put out. These are, these are grassroots community individuals who have a cell phone, have access to network, and are learning in that process. And so I think whilst and the formal education process is not doing them justice, and we know that, the informal education process is running well ahead of anything in that space. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there is a growing awareness and, and what is going to accelerate that will be the impacts of global warming. And so, you know, global warming fundamentally translates into extreme events. It clearly translates into temperature shifts and rainfall shifts over period. We see that in extreme events, so heavy droughts, heavy floods. And now people are joining the dots. So every time there's unseasonable rainfall or a heavy storm, or every time there's a bad drought, people start talking about global warming. They don't necessarily understand it. They won't necessarily take you through the science of it. But they are joining dots that something's gone wrong here. The next step is to start joining dots around the loss of biodiversity and the loss of ecosystem health and functions. And that, you know, a dry riverbed is a bad thing and that a polluted river is a bad thing forest for fuller function. That's the next piece. But I suspect that social media will drive that awareness dramatically. Now, Andrew, we've talked a little bit about COVID and the kind of effect that it's had and and what what you think a post-COVID world will look like. And it's obvious that there is a sense of growing awareness that that's come about as well. But there's also real downsides to the effects of COVID for Africa Foundation. And a lot of those are financial. So You've actually come on as CEO at a a very interesting time for the foundation when it's both vulnerable but also positioned to take advantage of a lot of of positives as well. What kind of an impact do you think that COVID and all of the after effects will have on your work? And what are some of the plans that you're putting in place to counteract that? 
COVID has been a definitive disruptor in so many ways. Um, from a foundation perspective, the starting impact was um, with the first lockdown or the, the rolling lockdowns catalyzed from March, April last year, which were draconian by nature and driven by wealthy economies that had the ability to do that, but trickled onto economies that didn't have that ability. And so in shutting down economic activity in South Africa and across the region, that meant that overnight individuals were left stranded with no source of income and no support system. And, and we really saw that. We saw that in the communities we operated. We operated in 73 communities. And literally, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people that went from having some form of livelihood support, some form of a job somewhere, or had somebody who had a job that was helping them, to having nothing. And so the first response in that context was to try and do our bit to just stave off that immediate pressure, which was just a pure hunger. And it's quite humbling to think that in this world we're living now that we can actually trigger hunger at that scale where you've literally got hundreds of thousands of people that suddenly going, I can't feed my family, I can't feed myself. And this from a space where they were surviving. So that was the first piece. Um, it was amazing to see how our team responded to that. I wasn't yeah, CEO, but I watched and, and, and I've listened to the stories afterwards and I've reflected on it. And, you know, there's just, I think it really talks to the, uh, the humanity that was demonstrated by the team, demonstrated by the and beyond family, and demonstrated by the extended donor family, who actually collectively all really put their hands into their pockets to try and help. So that was the first phase. Yes. None of us want to go there again. I think that lots of us learned, policy-wise, and this next phase of the COVID impact has been very different. So this has not been accompanied by the economic shutdown on the same level, mm. but has been accompanied by the real impact of COVID itself. So in that first period, the communities we, worked on, we work in were impacted, they were sort of incidentally impacted. It wasn't as if there were people in the community getting sick, they just lost their livelihoods. The second time we've seen the impact of COVID. I chatted to the, the team, chatted to the team recently about the impact of COVID in the northern KZN area and the Pumalanga area in South Africa. And the guys on the ground are saying, first of all, they are now in a situation where there is a funeral a day in those communities. At the peak of the HIV AIDS pandemic, it was a funeral or two a weekend. We're talking during COVID funeral day in these same environments. They were also very vulnerable. They were feeling scared. Two of our team members got ill, and so we really felt that. We've got through that, but we haven't. And so whilst the infection rate has slowed, the hard truth is that the underlying economy that, that those communities rely on, which is the ecotourism economy, is far from recovering. And we know that. We... So blessed to be working with and beyond, which has an incredible vision in terms of how they dealt with this. You know, the fact that and beyond has yet to retrench a single staff member is just amazing. People don't believe that that, that there's a 15 month commitment that they will not retrench anybody. It's just amazing in a sector that started retrenching within a couple of months, and that the shareholders have mm -hmm. hung in there and have continued to keep those operations going. 
But of course, we need to see that turn. We need to get to a point where visitors start coming back so we can breathe life back into those economies. It will come. I am positive about uh, the, the vaccination momentum being gained, particularly in the UK yes. and the US and to some extent in Europe. Um, and I think that that will in turn drive a dramatic shift. So I, I, you know, I remain positive that we're going to see quite a, a significant shift in tourism flows towards the middle of this year. From our perspective, we need to all get to the point where this, where a vaccination runs into the deepest, rural, most rural, poor community that's out there because your social inequality cannot determine whether you get a vaccination or not because in reality that is just fatal for everybody. <laughs> now, that's the point of it. As a social activist, I can might feel strongly about that, but the hard truth is that the, the rebound of society on this planet requires that we get past COVID as a society, not just as a small group. Yes. From a fundraising perspective, it, it was brutal. There is no question about that. What happened is that there was a massive diversion mm-hmm of funding. One, to fund government and corporate response to COVID, survival funding, and secondly, to fund the charitable response to that. And so in the process, other charitable causes just got abandoned, just got dropped. The foundation itself has been blessed by the support of our donor network. You know, year on year, we, we may well come out actually having a very similar year to the previous year. And that's just purely due to the commitment and generosity of the core group of donors that, have, that believe in the work that the foundation is doing. They believe that it's important Absolutely. to continue to support improved healthcare, improved education, improved livelihoods, mm-hmm. that we nurture this love and appreciation at the conservation interface and get enterprises up and going. So they've adopted that and we've mm-hmm. been very lucky. But I will say that we're, we're very unusual in that. I know that there are many, many, many charitable organizations in South Africa and globally that have just gone through the most horrific year as a result of overnight their income and drying up. So we've been lucky and it does talk to this incredible family that supports the foundation, this network of individuals that believe in this interface and the importance of it. What it's going to look like it's very hard to forecast. I think that what we will hopefully see is a shift in leadership wisdom. And this talks to that handing over the baton. We've been through some quite dismal conservative leadership in the last few years globally. That is almost archaic in its behavior. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's reversed gains around gender equality. It's reversed gains around diversity, um, it's reverse gains around sustainable use, it's reverse gains around climate change. What I, I hope has happened around COVID is that that leadership's response to COVID was found wanting and, and it exposed the dark side, it exposed the, the, the racism, it exposed the sexism, it exposed the me first, you second uh, approach to everything Mm. and has created space for a different set of voices to be heard. And we've seen more and more of those voices coming through. So I'm hoping that what COVID will do is it will trigger a leadership shift. It will trigger a revolution, essentially, that will create space for a 
more empathetic, a leadership, a society that embraces rather than fights for myself all the time to come through. And that will be fantastic at so many levels because the fundamental battles that we deal with, you know, the, the proxy is poaching of rhino or the, the child who doesn't have, you know, doesn't have food tonight or who doesn't get past a, the ability to read or write from an education perspective. Those are the, the proxies for what is wrong. Mm-hmm. What underlies that are economic systems that are failing and we need to change mm-hmm. those. And I'm quite hopeful that we're going to see that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I know I have a, a, a deep mm-hmm. um, understanding of the sustainability trends and drivers, and there's some amazing stuff happening in that context, particularly around a focus on decoupling the economy of the world from fossil fuel, and that will happen. So by 2050, mm-hmm. if I'm still around and I've got grandchildren, my grandchildren will actually ask, Dad, did you once, there was a thing called a diesel car, did you? Did you have a diesel car? You know, in the same way that my daughter now laughs when she sees a you know a telephone that you have on the side counter with a cable coming up, yeah. or a fax machine. So I think we will see that uh, people will talk about this idea that we did we really you know use coal to, to generate power? Why don't we? Why don't we just use wind and sun? It's for free. You know that sort of that narrative is coming, and I just hope that that then extends into the broader ecosystem that we recognise that. We need a healthy planet, and a healthy planet is healthy ecosystems. I'm positive about that. I think COVID is probably a moment in time that is going to accelerate some of those changes. And from a philosophical perspective, we've had a few of these happen in the last 100 years. We had the rise, the decline of the monarchies, and then the rise of the working class. We've had the rise of a global society, and these were triggered by big events, and I think COVID might be one of those. Well, it's certainly a very positive way of, of looking at it. Andrew, you know, in the context of the place where you find yourself now, what goals have you set for the future of Africa Foundation and for yourself as CEO? The first goal is to unlock the potential of the Africa Foundation to perform. Now, that sounds probably sounds obvious, but it, it, the truth is that the foundation, through a, a number of uh, circumstances, found itself in a space where its team were simply too small, too stretched, and were just not able to keep up with what this beast was starting to require of them, and this fantastic beast. Um, and so the first piece is let's unlock the potential of the foundation. So let's ensure that the team we have who are amazing are valued that we look after them, that we create space for them to be brilliant at what they do, and then link to that, that we strengthen the team. So let's bring in, let's complement the brilliance we've got with a whole lot of other bright young minds that can really enhance our ability to do great stuff. So that's the first. So immediate focus is on that. The second one is to work closely with the and beyond team, with the extended network of our family of you know, amazing supporters, donors, um, and partners out there to to scope the impact opportunity, and to stress there that we do amazing stuff. You know, the the social infrastructure work we we roll out is transformational. The education support is transformational. The livelihood support is, 
And we will continue to do that. But we need to make sure that we are doing it in the best possible way all the time, not just doing it the way it's been done, locked into that. So good thinking time around that. But then build around that foundation the opportunities to have more impact. And so at the moment, we've got some fascinating conversations around the small business development. We're launching a concept called the Hustle Economy Project. Uh, which we can chat about at some stage, but really focused on identifying community members who are really uh, making a difference in their communities, but who have the ability to create a number of small business opportunities to really hustle uh, in their communities for the good of those communities and find out how we can support them. We've got a project coming along that is going to look at creating work placements for large cadres of youth from our communities focused around restoration work, cleaning and greening the communities they live in, as well as working on protected areas around those, but with emphasis on developing their, their work readiness because one of the biggest challenges we have is we have generation after generation of kids that are coming out of school that are not work ready and they don't have the disciplines for work, they don't have the community ability that don't they don't have some of the basic skills and so we're going to focus on that and then we've got um, some fascinating conversations on the way around carbon in particular and trying to figure out how we can catalyze carbon projects projects that are focused around trapping or protecting carbon so um, capturing carbon or protecting existing stocks but doing it in a way that underwrites the economies of the communities that we work in. And there's some really interesting stuff happening with that. Yeah. So on the one side, let's let's build the capacity of the Africa Foundation to achieve its potential. And then secondly, scope what that potential could possibly be and understanding that that is going to change very quickly. And then the third piece, which is a core focus for me, is to shift back to that next generation piece and make sure that we are doing everything in our power to spot precocious talent that is coming through and to give find a place for it in our world, whether that is within the team or within the community mm-hmm. leadership structures we're working with or within our own leadership structures so that we accelerate this transition and we tap into this precocious talent that's coming through, this visionary leadership cadre that that we, we need to really be working with and charting the way forward. And so those would probably be the three things that are consume my time at the moment from a thinking perspective. And I've no idea what those look like, but I know that they're all important. Well, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a very, very exciting road ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's it's going to be a magical road. Huh? You know, this is about having impact. Uh, this is not a job for any of us. This is the privilege to make a difference. And... And that's a fantastic space to be in. It is indeed. Andrew, thank you. You've spoken very eloquently and very passionately about a lot of topics. And I would absolutely love to have you back to go into quite a few of them in more depth. This is a really great introduction and an overview of, of where you are and what you are looking ahead to with Africa Foundation. Thank you. Uh, it was my pleasure. And I look forward to um, conversations in the future. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to End Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats 
at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.